0: So, my name is Yoni Friedhoff.
1: My name is Deanna Tai. I'm a breast surgeon.
2: And I think there is a
0: place for anonymity.
3: Dr. Roy Poses, general internist.
0: And I've been blogging since 2005 at weightymatters.ca.
1: My primary audience is the patients, breast cancer and breast disease.
2: Well, my blog is called Skeptical Scalpel.
3: I am a blogmeister for a blog called Healthcare Renewal.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's no question that diet and nutrition and weight, I mean, those are hot topics out there.
1: The blog just allows me to put out that educational content, but with my own spin on it.
2: I think my family might have been reading it they said they were, but I'm not
3: entirely sure that even they were reading it. Basically, it talks about some of the uh, darker aspects of health care with the hope of uh, making things better.
4: This podcast is about doctors who blog. Sometimes it feels like social media has been around forever. But YouTube and Facebook aren't quite 15 years old. And Twitter just passed 10. The granddad of them all is blogging, with people blogging on the web for about 20 years now. Just WordPress alone estimates about 17 posts being published every second around the world. Now, I couldn't find statistics on doctors who blog, but it's interesting to note that about one in four scientists blog about research and science. But it's not so much numbers I'm interested in when it comes to doctors blogging. It's more why they do it, and what they've taken away from the experience, and what they see as the role blogging plays in the medical information landscape. Let's start with Dr. Yoni Friedhoff. He's a family doc up in Ottawa who specializes in nutrition and weight loss. He's been blogging longer than any of the docs I spoke with, almost 13 years. And I asked him how many posts he's written.
0: Way too many. It's definitely a pathology. I think it's over 3,200 blog posts since I started writing. There was a time where I posted six days a week, and uh, I've cut that back over the course of the past few years, and now I'm posting usually two to three pieces a week.
4: Now, almost 13 years and 18 million site visits later, I ask Friedhoff if the blog has changed him.
0: Well, so I definitely think I've changed in terms of my writing style or my approach to being outraged. You know, I still am regularly outraged, but I've learned over the years that, you know, angry writing doesn't tend to have the impact you hope. And at the beginning, in my early days, especially 2006, 2007, I was a very angry blogger and You know, you you get your echo chamber clapping you on the back for being angry. But, you know, if you want to reach more people, I think providing them with the information that led you to become outraged is more useful than trying to simply convey
4: your outrage. Friedhoff strikes me as mild-mannered, but I do have a sense of why he's been outraged. His area of expertise, nutrition, and especially obesity, seem particularly prone to misunderstanding and misinformation. It's one of the reasons he blogs, and labels himself a, quote, certifiably cynical realist. So I ask him how he feels about how the media handles obesity.
0: Yeah, I mean, the media handles obesity pretty poorly. It's still stuck and mired, although it's getting better slowly in the personal responsibility trope of obesity that... You know, if people simply tried hard enough or wanted to enough that somehow they would uh, change their weights, and that you know this is a, a condition that is well within the locus of control of everyone. And it relies on truisms of eat less and exercise more, but that's as useful a truism as buy low, sell high is to becoming rich. And the other thing that the media tends to do with obesity specifically is, you know, it it really approaches it in a way it would never approach any other condition. You know, defining people by their condition, not using people-first language, meaning that they'll say people are obese uh, rather than people have obesity. It's like saying people are cancerous rather than saying people have cancer. They use imagery and stereotypes that Suggest sloth and gluttony. You know the the headless person, the uh, person eating uh, junk food. Uh, they dehumanize the the people involved who have this this issue. And you know it's interesting when you consider the fact that the vast majority of all chronic conditions are preventable or treatable by way of lifestyle. We only moralize about obesity, and uh, I wish that would change. But again, I, I do I do see some improvements over the course of the past you know, 10, 15 years of watching this space.
4: Dr. Roy Poses, like Friedhoff, is an internist. Other than patient care, his areas of expertise have been evidence-based medicine and health policy. He's the main blogger at Healthcare Renewal, which he started to take on what he saw as abuses of power in medicine and to advocate for more transparency and accountability. He quickly learned blogging offered a totally new way to be more accessible and authentic.
3: We thought what we would say would be incredibly hard to get published in the scholarly literature, and we started off as academic uh, physicians who were used to. Uh, Publishing Outlet outlet be the scholarly literature, and we thought there's no way they're going to publish stuff like this because it will make uh, the powerful uh, uncomfortable. And blogging was a new hot thing back in 2004, and I realized we can publish it ourselves.
4: Making the powerful uncomfortable. Now, that resonates with me, and I wanted to hear more.
3: We found all sorts of scandals local scandals about badly run hospitals about suppressed uh, research all sorts of bad stuff which we felt was contributing to doctors' sense of malaise or anger or burnout yet none of these things were talked about beyond local newspapers and credit to the local newspapers who did talk about them. So blogging for us was a reaction to the fact that at the time you didn't talk about Say conflicts of interest affecting physicians and academics very much, if at all, in a scholarly journal. You didn't talk about the fact that lots of research never gets published because it offends the sponsor. That is now a big issue out there, um, but it wasn't um, when we started. So yes, you can say it was a reaction to the fact that uh, certain things were not spoken of in polite society, uh, even if they should have been.
4: And that may relate to one of the reasons the Skeptical Scalpel, who has a very popular blog, chose to remain anonymous. He's that voice you heard in the introduction, joking that maybe his family was the only one reading his stuff when he started blogging about eight years ago.
2: I decided to start writing about things that I observed over the years as a program director and a a chairman of surgery in community hospitals that I couldn't say when I was in the academic practice because you never knew who would read it and there might be repercussions because I was critical of some of the establishment. You know, some people say, oh, it's like a diary, so I just put stuff in there and now I know it's there and I can refer to it and whatever, but I wasn't. I'm really not into that. I was more into trying to make points and, and stir up some trouble uh, because it needed to be done, I thought. And so my motivation kind of went from just wanting to be a writer at first and then saying, hey, I really like doing this. And then I started getting good responses from people. And then it, it kept me going further and further.
4: And the skeptical scalpel isn't the only one who brought up feeling wary of the medical establishment. This strikes me as both understandable and sad. Understandable because medicine is by nature conservative and dedicated to publishing science, not opinion. On the other hand, it's a bit sad because challenging the status quo is a necessary fuel for advancing medicine. And I'd like to think it's in the best interest of both academic medical centers and scholarly journals to encourage alternative viewpoints. Now that's just my opinion, but here's an opinion that was shared by all the doctors I spoke with. Blogging has given them a voice.
1: I started posting blogs on my site around 2012, and I actually had reservations about that initially because I um, didn't think that I had a lot to say.
4: But UCLA breast surgeon Deanna Atai ended up having plenty to say. She's one of the most active breast surgeons on social media I know. And like nutrition expert Yoni Friedhoff, she says the audience she is trying to reach with her blog is mostly patients. And she feels strongly about having a social media voice. I ask her why.
1: Because I've seen the difference that it can make. I've seen the difference, especially in the BCSM community, the breast cancer social media community the difference that an engaged physician can make in terms of patient education, patient reassurance, um, and patient empowerment. And we hear over and over again that patients want us there. And I just feel it's it's just part of my responsibility as a physician. It's, it's just a, an extension of what I do in the office. And social media allows the individual physician to get out good quality evidence-based information to a potentially large audience and helps combat or dilute a lot of the misinformation or false news, if you will, regarding medical procedures and diseases that's, that's so prevalent on the internet.
4: What do you think a blog adds to the information landscape that makes it either unique or fun for you?
1: Well, it allows me, the blog allows me to go into more detail, uh, go into a lot more nuance. A lot of the subjects related to breast cancer have multiple sides and they're not always easily covered in a 140 or even a 280 character tweet. So. I use the blog in the same way I would discuss an article or a new finding with a patient coming into the office. So here is the information and here's my take on it and this is why I think this new finding is either good, bad, indifferent, here are the cautions Um, and that's that's really how I use the, the blog.
4: The blogging doctors I spoke with had several things in common. First, they all had a strong social media presence beyond their blog. Second, they all avoided giving direct medical advice, had disclaimers on their blogs, as you might expect, and had not run into any legal or ethical issues stemming from their blog. Finally, they all admitted that, to some extent, they used their blog to support evidence-based medicine and dispel misinformation. Let's wrap up this podcast with a question I asked each of the four bloggers I interviewed, and that is what advice do you have for other healthcare providers considering blogging or whether or not to get involved with any type of social media? I think physicians
0: as a whole should be focusing more thought on whether they are doing enough as advocates for public health and for their patients outside of their practices. And, uh, and that's where blogging and social media, I think, are very powerful. You are able to drive discussion far beyond, uh, you know, your own personal space.
2: I think the attention span of most internet readers is about 15 seconds. If you don't grab them in 15 seconds, you're not getting anywhere. And nobody's going to read a 1,500-word blog or even a 1,000-word blog. I try to keep mine around five or 600 words because I just think that if you go drone on and on, it better be pretty damn good prose for your they're checking out.
3: It gives you an opportunity that you would not have had uh, prior to the internet to speak your piece, to make your opinions heard, possibly to, to to put information out there.
1: I do think it's important that physicians, especially in this day and age, when it's so easy to get wrong information, that physicians set themselves up in some sort of public or social space to be a source of good quality information for patients and the public.
4: Would you call that a responsibility?
1: I, I do think that we have a responsibility to educate. I will stop short of saying all physicians have to be on social media, um, but social media is one way that we can educate a large number of patients much more than we could ever reach in our offices in our practices.
4: This podcast is a production of healthnewsreview.org. It's produced at our institutional home, the School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota, along the banks of the mighty Mississippi River. I'm Michael Joyce. Thanks for listening.